Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fury, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. It's good to see so many of you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, We turn eight years old today, so eight years ago, the first Sunday of October, we launched this church, and God has done great things among us, and we are grateful and uh, excited for what he's going to do moving forward. So thank you for being here to celebrate with us on this day, uh, and I hope you'll stick around. Even if you know this is your first Sunday with us, stick around, get to know us a little bit, eat with us. We'll, we'll enjoy getting to know you. One of the great things that we've been able to do in the last eight years is we planted a church about nine months ago, uh, Redeemer Southwest, and Jeff Skipper's the pastor there. He texted me this morning. I don't know if you're aware, Jeff struggles... Uh, really badly with allergies. They get the best of him sometimes. And so he, uh, he, he, he texted me just before we were coming in here and said, please pray. My allergies are really bad. I can barely speak and I have to preach. Uh, and that can be a scary thing uh, when you're in a church planning situation. And so would you mind if we just prayed for him? Because he should be getting up to preach right about now. Uh, since we changed our time, we can't really, you know, we're both, we're basically just about the same, the same time he's getting up. Uh, Uh, to talk even as we are. So let's pray. Can we do that and pray for Jeff? So Father, as Jeff stands to speak, we do pray that you you give him a voice. We know that you've put in his heart things to say uh, today, and uh, we know that your strength is made perfect in our weakness, and so we do pray that as he is physically weak this morning, uh, that you would make him strong and that you would use uh, the words of his mouth to glorify and honor you. We pray for the word to go forth as you promise in your word to accomplish the things for which it's been sent. And so, uh, Lord, um, we thank you uh, that he is in your hands, and we do pray, uh, Lord Jesus, that you would ride out uh, conquering uh, his people, conquering the part of the city you've given him uh, to go after uh, by the spoken word, which is the sword coming out of, the, of your mouth. Uh, ride out, Lord Jesus, and use him this morning. Uh, give aid to him in his physical weakness. Thank you for the work of that church. Bless them and make them a blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we think about what uh, ministry looks like for us moving forward, 
Uh, you know, it's fitting that we do a State of the Union address, and, and I wanted to do that this morning, but I also didn't want to leave our series in, in the book of Acts, and I think this passage is fitting for us to do both. As we think, look back on eight years of ministries, we think about however many more the Lord will give us moving forward. I really think this passage, what a powerful passage it is, and what a helpful passage to us, but, because I think the thing before us, uh, the make it or break it thing for us, is what you see here with these men imprisoned uh, and yet full of joy. Do you know the power of joy? I really think our ministry and the effectiveness of our ministry will be, will be um, impacted one way or the other by whether or not we can figure out this puzzle of joy. It's joy is what's at stake. And do you know the power of joy? Have you ever had one of those days where you feel so much happiness, there's a spring in your step, you seem to have more energy than, than other days, things don't bother you in the same way they normally do? Now, the next day, if you're anything like me, you might go right back to the way it was before. But for that day... For that one time, there's new power in your life. Do you know the power of joy? Have you ever been around a person who just radiates joy? What's that like? I asked Bob to lead our liturgy today because he's the most joyful person I know. You might say he's uncomfortably joyful. <laughs> right? I, at least I could feel that in the room this morning. Like, is this guy, is this guy for real? And I would tell you he is. He is, and if you got to know him, you'd know that. And it's impossible, it's impossible to listen to him laugh and not begin to laugh yourself. Yeah, Bob has the ability to create a chain reaction of joy. Do you know the power of joy? Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the great preacher in London throughout the 20th century, preached a series of 24 sermons in 1954 that became a book uh, that's changed my life and the life of many others called Spiritual Depression. And in that book, he makes an argument that I think is just as applicable and probably more so for us today. He's talking about what he calls a depressed Christian. Now, uh, he doesn't mean someone who's struggling with depression. And so we don't, that's, that's a real thing, and we don't want to make light of that whatsoever. But he means by this, by this phrase, someone who is a believer, and yet for whatever reason, they, they're grumpy all the time and they're really hard to deal with cynical and hypercritical of other people and so forth. And so here's what he says. He says in this book, he says, a depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms, and he is a very poor recommendation for the gospel. We are living, listen to this, this is 1954. He says, we are living in a pragmatic age. People today are not primarily interested in truth, but they are interested in results. The one question they ask is, does it work? They are frantically seeking and searching for something that can help them. And nothing is more important, therefore, than that we should be delivered from the condition which gives other people looking at us the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid. There are many, he goes on to say, who give this as a reason for not being Christian. They are fond of contrasting us with people out in the world, people who seem to be so thrilled by the things they believe in. They... They shout at their football matches. They talk about the films they've seen. They're full of excitement and want everybody to know it. But Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and lack of freedom and absence of joy. Now listen, he says, there's no question at all but that this is the main reason why numbers, large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity altogether. Now his premise fits with our passage because we read that as Paul and Silas, you see them here, right, begin to sing and worship God in their prison cell. Isn't it amazing to see that? 
But then in verse 25, if you look carefully, we're told there that as they do this, the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening to them as they hold this worship service in this place of, of their confinement. Now, I wonder, Christian, to you, do you live as if you're on display? The Bible says that God has put you on display in this world. Do you live as if you're on display, as if the world is wanting to know whether the gospel that we talk about really works? Parents, your kids are wondering that. And they're watching to see if it works in your life. And I wonder, do you know that the thing that communicates what you really believe and what you really value is not your decisions, it's not your habits or your traditions, it's not even your words. You want to know what communicates? Your joy. Do you know the power of joy? In the great divorce, C.S. Lewis, who's uh, talked a lot about these things and taught me a lot, so get ready for a heavy dose of him this morning, I suppose. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he said this, he says, there is, he's describing this person that is, that is being regaled in heaven. Uh, that's what the book is about. And he just says, he has this amazing sentence. He says, there is, there is enough joy in the little finger of a great saint to waken all the dead things in the universe to life. It's a beautiful line. Uh, but I believe that it's true in part because of this story and what we see happening here In Acts chapter 16, it is the story about the power of joy for evangelism. And the great argument, the great argument that you and I have, if you're you're here and you're a believer, the great argument that we have for the truth and the power of our faith is our joy. We evangelize. We evangelize through joy all the time. Do you know that? Do you know the power of joy? Now, what we see here in this passage are just these three things. We see first, or what I want you to see anyway, is that put on display here for us is a beautiful joy. But not only a beautiful joy, there's also a dutiful joy, not a dutiful joy, a dutiful joy. A, a dutiful joy. And then lastly, an indisputable joy. And I want to look at all three of those things because they really do speak to some issues in our lives. So a beautiful joy, a dutiful joy, and an indisputable joy. You see all three of those things. Let's just start with what I mean by a beautiful joy. Let's look a little bit closer here what happens. Here are these men, Paul and Silas. They have, just in case, we didn't read all of it for time's sake, but if you go back in in chapter 16, they have been attacked by the crowds. They've been thrown into prison now. We're told here they've been shackled to the wall. It's been a really tough day. And we're given the little detail that it's midnight. Now, I don't know how alert you are at midnight. See, but I'm getting on to where it's hard to have a whole lot left after a normal day and not, uh, not to mention a tough day. This is a tough day. It's midnight. Any sensible person would be asleep. They should be exhausted. They should be despairing. And yet, look at verse 25. There in their prison cell, what are they doing? We're told they are praying and singing hymns to God. Now, this is undoubtedly what got the attention of the jailer and the other prisoners in the face of of suffering. In the face of this terrible suffering, Paul and Silas have peace and joy. Now, let's ask some questions. Is there a song in your heart, even in the times when there are tears in your eyes? Paul and Silas are singing and suffering. And it was so remarkable that it caught the attention of the other prisoners. They were amazed, we're told, 
and the jailer himself, it becomes the occasion for his conversion, his salvation. Now, you see, the world only knows joy that is tied to circumstances, and because it's tied to circumstances, then it's always in danger. It almost never happens, and when it does, it hardly ever lasts. And so, if you look closely, you'll see how our culture is growing more and more cynical about joy. We really are cynical about joy as a culture, and it's why Hollywood elites seem to be turning to Eastern religions like Buddhism. Everybody in Hollywood is becoming a Buddhist. Have you noticed this? Because Buddhism is about detachment. Don't give your heart to anything. That's the only way to be happy. Don't pursue it. You'll never find it. So what you need, what you really need is you need power to not to need to be happy. The way to get happiness is to not need to be happy. Or C.S. Lewis, he said it this way. He said, if you want to be If you want joy and peace, if you want to find serenity, don't give your heart to anything. Put it in a little casket of selfishness. That's the only way. you got to put your heart, you got to encase your heart in a little casket of selfishness to make sure it never gets broken. But the problem is, is that when you do that, your heart itself becomes unbreakable. So, so see, here's a problem. If you give your heart to things, you're probably going to be hurt and disappointed. But if you don't give your heart away, then you'll become increasingly inhuman. Do you see the dilemma? It's a dilemma every single one of us face and experience. It's not okay to not give your heart to anything, but it's really scary and dangerous to do so. So what do we do? But you see, Christianity is the solution because Christianity, unlike the culture, makes possible a joy that's not tied to circumstances. Look at Paul and Silas. I mean, look at them. Are they having a good day or a bad day? It's a terrible day. But they have joy. They're not down. They're not despairing. And the lesson is that happiness and joy are not the same thing. Now, I should say that I'm very indebted to Tim Keller, who's a pastor in our denomination, for much of this and and some sermons that he's uh, talked, in in which he's talked about joy. But, uh, you know, without having to quote him at every every turn, I'll just say that. And here's one of the things he says. He says, what the world calls happiness is something different than what the Bible means by joy. What the world calls happiness is, these are his words, getting control of your life so that you keep your circumstances favorable. That's happiness. It's the strategy of getting control of your life so that you can keep your circumstances favorable. Do a Google search of happiness when you get home this afternoon. Go to happiness.com. There is such a thing. Happiness.com. Here's what you'll find. Top five components for happiness. Number one, get the basics. Food, shelter, and safety. Number two, get, get enough sleep. That's weird that that's number two to me. but Number three, have relationships that matter to you. Four, take compassionate care of others and yourself. And five, have work that interests and engages you. Sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, I imagine it is what most of us in this room are aspiring to, but do you realize, do you realize how ridiculous that is? Why is, it such, why is that so ridiculous? Why is that such a problem? Well, because most people in most places throughout the history of the world have never had those things. What do you do about all the people in the world today who can never get enough of the basic necessities? I mean, interesting and engaging work. There are places in the world where there's 95% unemployment rate. I mean, this is first world problem stuff, right? I mean, this is how warped our ideas about life have become in the West with all of our privilege and influence. Happiness, we say, is getting my circumstances in the right place. I'm happy as long as, as things are going well. But here's the problem. What happens, what happens when things aren't going well? Well, the world has no answer to that, but Christianity does, because Christianity says you might not be able to manage your circumstances, but you can live with joy. 
And it's a joy that's not based on circumstances. So in Romans 5, that passage that, that Bob read a little while ago, Paul says there in verse 11, we rejoice. He doesn't say we rejoice in good things and all these things. He says we rejoice in God, not circumstances. And again there in Romans 5, we rejoice, he even says, in suffering. Even in suffering, in hard circumstances. He says hard circumstances can even be a cause for joy for Christians. How? Why? Because even the hard things in life are opportunity to get more of God, and he's the real object of joy to begin with. So do you see, Christian joy, unlike worldly happiness, not only can be maintained in bad circumstances, but here's the thing, it can actually grow in bad circumstances. Do you, do you see how unassailable you can become in this? Worldly happiness goes away when things go bad because it's based in good circumstances, but Christian joy can actually get stronger. How? Well, kids, you're in here today. Has your mom ever said something like this? Don't eat that candy before dinner. What does she say? What's her rationale? You'll ruin your appetite. For us, we don't have a whole lot of candy laying around, but juice was always a problem with our kids. So we had to really watch our kids when they were younger to make sure they didn't drink a whole lot of juice. If you, gave them a, if you gave them a glass of juice in the kitchen, by the time they got to the table, they'd have drank it already. Anybody else? And then what happens? Then they don't eat anything because, because uh, what, what happens is with the juice or with the candy, it gives you a sugar buzz. And the sugar buzz causes you to not feel hungry, but what's happening is it's, it's masking the fact that your body needs the nutrients in the food and you're not... You're not giving, it, giving them to them. So good circumstances sometimes, whether it's relationships or wealth or success, all of these things, they're spiritual sugar. And what happens to Christians is we say, I believe in God, and I know I'm going to heaven, but then we base our day-to-day happiness on our circumstances. But then when the, when the circumstances go away, you have no choice. You have no choice. When the circumstances in your life start to go bad, it drives you to God. You start feeling hungry in a way that you weren't before, for the spiritual food your soul really needs, and you go to the place where you can have your hunger satisfied. Suffering, this, is, this sounds kind of funny, but suffering takes away the spiritual junk food of your life so that you can get the nutrients you need. And so you see Paul and Silas, how could they live this way? How is it that, that they could be like this here? They're, they're here in their cell making a huge impression on the jailer and the other prisoners. Why? Because in the face of suffering, they saw, they saw in them peace and joy. And not only that, but also in the face of cruelty, they saw in them kindness and forgiveness. How does the joy Paul and Silas had enable them to live? How can you live? Uh, what, we, what we're taught here is that the joy that we can find in, in God in Christ can cause us to move towards others, and even those who've been mean to us and hurt us with incredible energy and patience to love them. Because that's what happens here. Look, Paul and Silas were arrested and turned over to this jailer, this man who by the end of the passage has become a Christian. We're told that the jailer didn't bandage them up. He does, it, he does all of this later, but at, the, but at the beginning he doesn't bandage them up. He doesn't wash their wounds. This is what he would normally have been tasked with doing. There was a certain care for prisoners that they were supposed to be. If they had been beaten, they would have been bloody, and obviously they probably should have had medical attention. He should have bandaged them up. He didn't do any of that. We're told, verse 24, he puts them in the inner cell, which uh, is something like solitary confinement. It's, where, it's a form of punishment. There would be no light there. The air would be stale and so forth. Not only that, he puts them in the inner cell, but then we're told also, verse 24, and, and he puts them in the stocks. And stocks were a form of torture. They, they splayed the legs out and caused terrible cramping and pain and just was, was a great, great, you know, horrible thing. 
And the point of all these details that we're getting here from Luke was that this jailer had been unnecessarily cruel to Paul and Silas. He was given charge of them, but he wasn't commanded to do all of this that he had done. And most of the commentators say he's, he was probably trying to ingratiate himself to the magistrates who had turned them over to him. He's, he's looking for a job promotion or something to that effect. And then, and then this earthquake happens. And the chains fall off. And the doors of the cells open. And in comes the jailer, and he sees the doors open, and he draws his sword, and he was just about to kill himself because he knew that the penalty for a jailer who lost his prisoners was death. And then, just before he can uh, thrust the sword into his belly, Paul called out from the inner cell, Don't harm yourself, we're all still here. In other words, the doors flew wide open, but there was no jailbreak. Not only did Paul and Silas stay put, but the most amazing thing really to me in the whole text is not only did they stay put, but somehow they talked the other prisoners into staying put too. Nobody moved. And this is why when the jailer came in, he called for the lights. He saw everybody still there, and he fell down trembling in front of Paul and Silas because he knew. He knew that he had been unduly cruel to them. He had treated them terribly, and they had been given the perfect opportunity to get him back. All they had to do was walk out, and they didn't. They stayed, and Paul's very clear to communicate, they stayed out of concern for him. They stayed to save his life. In spite of all that he had done to them, they did not repay evil with evil, but overcame evil with good. They forgave him, and he was amazed. And all he could say, all he could get out of his mouth in the moment was, verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He saw their joy and peace in the face of suffering and how it gave them power to love and forgive in the face of cruelty. And he said, whatever it is that you've got that can make you live like that, I don't have it and I need it or I'm not going to make it. See, Christianity makes a whole other way of living possible. That's the point. Forgiveness, like you see here, It's an act of self-renunciation. We live in a culture of self-assertion. And so Christianity says that the meaning of life is to deny yourself, to give up your freedom and your rights for God and for others. Because this is the pattern, it is the story, it is the structure of Christianity. Because, of course, it is the way that Jesus Christ has loved us. He gave up his life for us. He didn't think about himself and what he wanted. He didn't do what was good for him. He didn't pay back those who were his enemies, he sacrificed himself even while we were still sinners. And you heard, Paul, you heard um, Bob get choked up when he read it. Even when we were his enemies and still in our sin, Romans 5 said, Christ died for us. See, the jailer knows that Paul and Silas have a power that he doesn't. They have something that's happened to them that he has not experienced. And that's, that's the thing that created the opportunity for evangelism. So let me ask you, do you have a beautiful joy like this. When is the last time, when is the last time somebody looked at you, at you and said, I don't know what it is about your life, but you've got something that I don't, and if I don't get it, I'm not going to make it. If we are living distinctively Christian lives, that should be happening all the time. Because we're meant to live with a beautiful joy. So you see first, the beautiful joy and the power that it can have on you and the power that it can have through you on the people around you. But what about, there's a second thing here, and that is what about when you just don't feel happy? (laughs) 
Does anybody ever have one of those days? I'm sure not. One of my favorite children's books is the Dr. Seuss books, My, my Many Colored Days. Do you know this one? I, really, I like that one. And so, some days, Dr. Seuss says, are purple days. And on purple days, I'm sad, I groan, I drag my tail, I walk alone. So what about on purple days? Well, on purple days, when you can't find this beautiful joy that we're talking about, what you need is you need a dutiful joy. There's a beautiful joy, and then there's a dutiful joy. And both of them are important. Both of them are distinctive to Christianity as well. Now, look, at, look here again. It's, it's important to notice. It's important to notice that the text, you're going to miss this, okay? You're going to miss it if you don't pay attention here. The text does not tell you how Paul and Silas were feeling. It doesn't tell us how they were feeling. What does it tell us? It tells us what they were doing. Let me say that again. It doesn't tell us here what Paul and Silas were feeling. It tells us what they were doing. When we read about midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's a description of action, not feeling. And this is why I chose that Philippians passage at the very beginning of the, ser- of, of the, of the service, where Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, Philippians 4, 6. We read that and we hear a call to a certain feeling. Be happy. Paul's saying, oh, you got to be happy all the time. You gotta be- Nobody's happy all the time. Amen? You with me? Nobody's happy. If you're happy all the time, then you're not being real. You're not being honest. Nobody's happy all the time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We read it and we think he's saying I got to be happy all the time and I just feel crushed by that. I have, to be, I have to have happy feelings about my life all the time. That's not at all what Paul means. Paul says rejoice and rejoicing in the Lord is an action, not a feeling. It's a spiritual discipline that you can do no matter how you're feeling. Martin Lloyd-Jones is the one who really taught me this in the book I referred to earlier, and he says, there, there is all the difference in the world between rejoicing and feeling happy. You cannot make yourself happy, he says. You cannot make yourself happy, but you can make yourself rejoice. And that sentence has changed my life. That right there, you cannot make yourself happy, but you can make yourself rejoice. It's changed my life. What does he mean? Well, he's making an argument that you can't allow your life to be dictated to you by how you're feeling. Joy is a settled state of mind that is independent of the circumstances around you and even the, and even the feelings inside of you. Joy is not only independent of the circumstances around you, it's also independent of the feelings inside of you. And that's why it's so powerful. Rejoicing in the Lord is a way of handling yourself. It's a way of living from what you know rather than what you feel. Because sometimes you can't control how you feel, but you can control your reaction to how you feel. You may not be able to make yourself happy, but even when you don't feel happy, you can make yourself rejoice. I mean, let's be honest. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want us to read this passage and look at Paul and Silas and think, those guys, something wrong with them. I, I don't imagine that Paul and Silas were happy. Who would be happy after a day like this? Who would be happy in the stocks, in prisons? They, they, they weren't masochists. It wasn't, their circum, it wasn't that their circumstances didn't affect their emotions. That's impossible. What was so unique about them was that their emotions didn't affect their actions. You see the difference between that? It wasn't that their it, the power of Christianity is not that your circumstances can, can no longer affect your emotions. The real power is that even when your circumstances begin to affect your emotions, your emotions don't have to affect your actions. They were able to live from what they knew and how they were feeling at the moment. And that's the difference between happiness and rejoicing. You know, I, I remember Jonathan as a passing comment uh, a long time ago now, just talked about how he, start, he uh, years ago, started to sing 
the old uh, cheesy Christian praise song, This is the Day. This is the day. You know that one? In the shower. So now in the morning I wake up and I just imagine Jonathan in the shower singing, This is the day the Lord has made. And it just brings a smile to my heart all the time. All the time. <laughs> oh, now I'm going to get, I'm not going to be able to recover from that. But <laughs> it really may take me a second. Give me just a second. So I've started to try to do the same thing, not necessarily in the shower, but, um, but just, to, just to come back to that verse every morning. This is the day, listen to it, this is the day, this is the day the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. There's something, listen, there's something beautifully stubborn and defiant about that verse. And that's what I love about it so much. This day, this day of chains and prison cells is the day the Lord has made. This, this, whatever it is that I'm having to go through, this is what God has for me today, and it has come from Him, and He is a good, good Father, so this is good. He has given His Son to save me from my sin and death because He loves me, and I can be confident in His love, so this day, this day today, and whatever it might bring is full of His gifts to me, and so I say yes to whatever this day brings. Because if it is full of good things, I will rejoice and I will give thanks. And if it is full of hard things, I will still rejoice and give thanks. Can you imagine how indestructible your emotional constitution would be if you could face every day like that? The power of joy is the ability to live in light of the truth no matter what you're facing outward or what you're facing and feeling inwardly. Rejoicing is the conscious decision to fight to believe the truth even when you don't feel it. That's what rejoicing is. It's the fight to believe the truth even when you don't feel it. And I think it's what you see here with these two men. The opposite, of course, is what comes before in Philippians 4, what Paul calls grumbling and questioning. That's Philippians 2:14, Allowing your unhappiness with the way life is going to cause you to think and speak badly about God. So don't water that down. Complaining in a complaining spirit is an accusation. You got this wrong, God. And that's unbelief. And it makes you miserable. And there's no power in it. And it's spiritually lazy. Rejoicing. Rejoicing is refusing to commiserate with yourself. But instead taking yourself in hand. Reminding yourself of the truth until the light of the truth pierces through your circumstances and your emotions. So to experience, hear me, listen, this is the whole point I want to say this morning. To experience peace and joy when things are going bad and be able to keep your composure and look around and think about how to, you can love and care for others, that is a supernatural thing. You with me? Can you feel that? That is a supernatural thing. And who, if they saw that, wouldn't want to come to know the secret about how to get it? But here's the thing. But to be lacking in peace and joy when things are going bad and still possess enough self-discipline and force of habit to rejoice, to pray and sing even when you don't feel like it, that's even more impressive. And it's just as supernatural. And it's just as beautiful. So the irony is, is that a dutiful joy is a beautiful joy. And it's really important. Paul and Silas's joy here, it's beautiful. 
And it's also dutiful, and both are supernatural. And you need both, because sometimes it will be there and sometimes it won't, let's be honest. And that leads us to the third thing. The third thing we see here is that this joy that we see in them is also an indisputable joy. And so if you're a Christian, or if you're becoming a Christian, salvation is a head-on collision with what John Piper calls sovereign joy. Now let me explain. Salvation, according to Christianity, goes beyond doing. But look at what the jailer does. Look at his response again. He comes to these men and he asks, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? He assumes that if he's going to get salvation, it will be through his doing. And it's interesting in the Bible that this is a common first response to Christianity, but always the wrong response. So you have Naaman, the Syrian general in the Old Testament, and the rich young ruler in the Gospels. Both of them have this identical first response. They say, what must I do? Because they believe, like you and I, like most people today believe, that religion is all about doing. And they both walked away confused and unbelieving because Christianity is not about doing, it's about grace. The jailer expects a list. Here are the seven things that you have to do. But what does he get? What's he get? He gets one thing. Believe in what Jesus has done for you and you'll be saved. Do you see, the message here from Paul and Silas is that salvation is free. It's grace. You don't get saved by doing. You get saved by not doing. And so whether you're a Christian or not, the problem isn't that you're not doing and you need to start doing. The problem is that you're doing Whether you're doing religious things or whether you're doing irreligious things and you need to stop doing. You don't become a Christian. Nobody becomes a Christian by start start doing. You don't become a Christian by... Well, let me say it this way. You don't don't become a Christian by starting to do things. You, You become a Christian not when you start doing, but when you stop doing and you put all of your confidence and hope and trust in what Jesus has done, what God in Christ has done for you. So so salvation, we're told here, goes beyond doing. It's about Jesus' doing, not our doing. Isn't that good news? Is it good news? You with me? Is it good news? Does it bring joy to your heart? It should. It should be palpable. We should feel it in the room. That is the good news. That is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's also terrifying, isn't it? Sobering, isn't it? Because you know what it means, don't you? It means you can't fake it. Becoming a Christian means it's not just an external thing. It's not just something you can just, through the sheer force of willpower or whatever the case might be, self-reformation, make it happen. Becoming a Christian means that you must be changed in the innermost parts of your life. You have to be changed at your joy. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his autobiography, he, he, he gave the, his autobiography the, the title, Surprised by Joy. And in it, he said, and that's why he talks about joy so much, but in it, he said that conversion, listen, he said conversion is, is coming to understand that you live with a desire for something that you have never experienced, and you never will. He says, we all look back on some experience in our past, and we think, oh, if I could just get back there, then I'd be happy again. You know, back when my kids were young, or were in the home, with, in the house with me, whatever the case might be, or we look at a relationship, or a house that can give you a southern living type feeling, or a book, or music, or something like such things, and we think the joy is there, right? The the joy my heart longs for. If I could just get that thing, whatever it is, if I could just get that thing, then I'd have it. But the Bible calls this idolatry. What the Bible means by idolatry is looking to earthly things to satisfy heavenly longings. And Lewis's point is that all of the very best things, listen, listen, the very best things in life, and he says in a way that only he can, he says, the best things in life are only 
but the scent of a flower we have not found, and the echo of a tune we have not heard, and news from a country we have not yet visited. He says conversion is waking up to the reality that we all live with desires that nothing in this world can satisfy. And so the most compelling Christians are not people who have gotten the most of life's joys. They're not. Let me just, I've, 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 you know, I'm getting around a little bit. I've been around the block a little bit now. Let me just tell you, the most compelling Christians that I know are not the people who've gotten the most of life's joys because most of those people, they've got everything in the world and they're still grumpy and unfulfilled. The most compelling Christians are people, a lot of them don't live in our culture, who have missed. They've missed on the good life, but they have no less joy because they know that what their heart longs to have is not found in anything in this earth. When you're after a joy that the world can't give you, see, when that becomes your goal, when you're, do you hear, do you hear how I put that? When you're after a joy that you know the world cannot give you, then you'll be able to sing. Just like Paul and Silas. In the bad times with as much sincerity and feeling as in the good times. And so let me ask you a question. Do you know what joy your heart is after? That's the first thing. Augustine, St. Augustine also described his conversion as a journey of joy too. After a long struggle he became intellectually con- convinced of the truth of Christianity, but he was unwilling to convert because he was a notorious philanderer. <laughs> he, uh, he, was, he knew Christianity was true, but he experienced too much joy in his sex life to give it up. He wasn't willing to give it up. He described, it was just an agonizing experience for him that took a long period of time. He described uh, becoming a Christian in this way. He says, it was a search for the strength to enjoy God more than earthly pleasures. Now, let's be clear. Augustine said, in order to become a Christian, you have to have more joy in God than you do in sex, money, success, and college football. Easy for me to say. It's easier to say that sentence the day after your team loses in heartbreak fashion, okay? You with me, Josh? Amen? You got it? Easier to say that today. You don't, you know, you need more joy in God than in those things. But here's the thing. How does that happen? Because I don't know about you. You don't control your joy. Most of the time, we're not in control of our joy. So Augustine said that salvation is ultimately something that God must do in you. Here's how he put it about his own conversion. These are his words, and they're really, they're really beautiful. He says, how sweet at all, excuse me, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. He says, you drove them from me. You, he's talking to God, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. So according to Augustine, grace is God giving us sovereign joy in himself that triumphs over joy and sin. That God works deep in the human heart to transform the springs of joy so that we love God more than anything else. That's the only explanation for Paul and Silas in the prison cell. That they have been changed at that level. But here's my question, have you? You see, becoming a Christian is more than just doing. It's having the springs of joy in your life completely transformed so that no other joy stands between you and God. There is... There is, to be honest, too much doing and not enough enjoying among Christians. There's too much doing and not enough joy. And the doing and the lack of joy is a sign that the church is full of people who are in the church but not in Christ. Because conversion is the experience of joy in God that allows you to turn your back on sin. 
So the question I think the text asks us this morning is, have you experienced that kind of joy in God? There's lots of soul searching, isn't there? Lots of soul searching. But here's what I want you to see. Paul and Silas here, don't make much of them. Paul and Silas, what you see them doing here, that's garden variety, everyday, normal Christianity. In the power of the Spirit. But let me talk to the Christians for just a minute. I need to finish up here. So let me just say this. If you're here and you're, you're a Christian, can I ask you some questions? Or can I just say some things that might be kind of tough? Let me say to you, more than your habits, more than your words, your joy is evangelizing the people around you. My dad and I took the girls to their first Seminoles home football game yesterday. And I'm very proud to say that all four of my children, at least up to the, to the moment, are Florida State fans. Why? Because garnet and gold is really just that more appealing than orange and blue. It's true, but of course, that's not the reason why. You tell me, why would my eight-year-old daughter be excited enough about a football game to sit through what was a four-hour football game, for the most part, and yell and scream? What is the explanation for her excitement to do that? She was excited. Why? Because her dad was excited. Dads, your kids will naturally get excited about the things that you're excited about. Your joy is communicating to your kids more than your actions, more than your words, what you think is good and beautiful and true. If you go to the game on Saturday and yell and scream and then trudge into church on Sunday and go through the motions, your joy in the one and your drudgery in the other is communicating value. Words are not enough. Right action is not enough. It's your enthusiasm. It's, it's your joy. The things in your life that will naturally make their way into the lives of your kids are the things that you are naturally the most excited about, that when you talk about it, your voice lifts. And when you're doing it, there's a spring in your step. You, if we evangelize through joy. It's just true. Now, as we think about our mission as a church, what does it mean to be eight years old and to have lots before us that we want to do? John Piper has famously said, you cannot come in what you do not cherish. And I think our repentance this morning starts right there. There's a whole world out there in desperate need of the good news that has been entrusted to us. The world is without joy. It is looking for an indisputable joy, and they're looking to us. Will we be, will we be the 1% of churches in America that are actually engaging with non-Christian people and seeing them consistently come to faith. 1%. Will we be the 1%? The church is failing in its mission. And it's not, it's not a strategy problem. It's a joy problem. We, we have been eating bread that does not satisfy, and we have been drinking water that does not quench. And the world can see. And so we come to this table this morning... For a joy correction, because here, here's the bread of life. And Jesus says, if you eat this bread, then you will never be hungry again. It will fill your life with a joy that will be so compelling that the world will, will not wait for you to come to them. They will be coming to us saying, I need what you have. Please tell me whatever it is that you have, I don't have. And if I don't get it, I'm not going to make it. Man, that we would see more of that. And so let's pray that God would do exactly that in our midst as we come to the table this morning. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you, 
Uh, we confess, I guess we should start. I should just start with the honest truth. We confess that too often our hearts are all mixed up. We're excited and happy about things that don't matter at all. And we're sluggish about the things that are of true value and importance. Our, the joyometers of our hearts are just fried. That we can, that we can find such natural joy in, in so, such trivial things. And yet when we're faced with deep spiritual truth, we are so unfeeling. Father, forgive us and heal us. We need to be healed. Uh, we're broken people and we need, we need joy. We need joy to pass on the faith to our children. We need joy uh, to make it through this life which is full of sadness and hardship and pain. We need joy uh, because it's what we've been made for. C.S. Lewis said joy is the serious business of heaven. And so even in these moments, would you come, Holy Spirit? Joy is a fruit that you produce in our lives. It's not something we even control. And so would you come and overshadow us with your power and, and begin to bear the fruit of joy in our lives that we might be a people compelling to a watching world, that they might want to know the, hope, the reason for the hope that we have. Uh, that is what you've put us here to do. And so make us the people that can accomplish the mission you've given us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We have, much, we have much to rejoice in, amen? God has been good to us. Uh, he's been good to us as a church, and so as a church we have much to rejoice in too. And that's what we're going to do. We take this time every year when we come to this date to hang around and enjoy one another, eat together. So we're going to invite you to join us in the fellowship hall. Even if it's your first Sunday, come eat with us. Here's what we need you to do though, okay? Let me explain this. If you have children and kids worship, would you go get them please? Then come back out and make your way all the way around. We're going to enter the, we're going to enter Covenant Hall from... The doors on the road there. Uh, it's going to be a long line of people, so it's air conditioned in here. It's not out there, so stay in here, some of you, and enjoy just talking for a while, so the line doesn't get overloaded. Just know we're going to be here for a while, and that's good. But uh, we we want to linger and have all the time we want to. Uh, so please stay and enjoy that with us, okay? And here's what I'm going to do: just I need to pray a, a blessing on the food, I guess, because it would be impossible to do that over there. So can I do that? And so Father, as we eat together now and celebrate with with one another, and we celebrate you, would you come and and, and dine with us. We thank you that you've uh, provided spiritual food for our souls at this table in this room this morning. Now we thank you that you provide physical nourishment for our bodies at the tables we sit around in Covenant Hall in just a few minutes. You are a good and faithful, loving Lord to us. And so we give you thanks. Would you help us to eat and drink in these, in these uh, next few minutes together in a way that honors and glorifies you? Uh, would we encourage one another uh, and strengthen one another. Would you strengthen the bonds of peace and friendship and, and love that we feel towards one another? Continue to make us a church uh, tightly knit together with one another that in the way we love one another puts on display your love for the world. Uh, may all that happen in these coming, uh, coming minutes. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Southwest finishes, they're going to join us. As Berea finishes their services, they're going to join us as well. So know there are going to be people coming in. Be aware of that. There are places to sit in all of the classrooms, in case there's too many of us, so just be aware of all of that. Okay, now, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then what was true of that jailer who was converted, and at the end of the passage, it says that he rejoiced with them. His faith is, is described as rejoicing. And so, if, if you're here and your faith is in the Lord Jesus, go rejoicing over even this promise here at the end of our service, this benediction, that the Lord so loves you that he turns his face towards you to bless you. Would you receive these words, and then let's go and eat together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. 
give you peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace and enjoy yourself.